Hey, good morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just thank you, God, so much um, for the body of Christ that we could come together on Sundays and uh, be together and have fellowship and worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray you just um, fill us with your spirit today and just uh, pray that we would just um, draw so close to you. We thank you so much, God, for um, all that you did during the Reformation, um, for all that means to us and to your church. And I just pray that I would do it justice, Lord God, in the next few weeks. We thank you so much, God, for all you give us. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. <clears throat> a little out of breath, kind of running late today. That's all right. <clears throat> um, I hope all of you guys had a chance to read the handout. I hope it wasn't too overwhelming. Um, and if you didn't have a chance to read the handout in the Middle Ages, um, Sue actually emailed me and said she could post it online. So I was really happy to see that. So um, if you didn't get that or if you haven't had a chance to read it, um, it's actually online um, with the regular kind of overview of the class. Um, so with that, um, kind of bummed didn't get to go over in class more of the Middle Ages, but that's okay. But I'm really excited because today we're going to start the Reformation. Um, in order to understand the Reformation, I have to go over some of the um, theology and sort of theological developments that led up to the Reformation. Otherwise, it's impossible to fully understand uh, the Reformation's importance uh, and why the Reformers were so adamant in rejecting the sort of traditional church of their day. <clears throat> um, you have to forgive me this week, maybe kind of half of next week. I want to I take my time on this stuff. I'm not going to get too technical. I'm not going to get too deep because this stuff can get really thick. But I do want to, you know, really do it justice to sort of explain how some of these things developed over the centuries, not only so that it can help us to understand the Reformation better, but it's also a reminder to us that heterodoxy is something we all need to be aware of, okay? You cannot look at a past teacher and not find at least something that we would call heterodox, okay? For example, uh, one of my heroes of the faith is a J. Gresham Mason, okay? Most of you guys have probably heard of him, kind of the, the real leader of the sort of a fight against liberal Protestantism in the early 20th century. Read a lot about him. He's a very inspirational guy. i um, recently been reading a biography that I've read in the past, but I was kind of re-going over it. Um, anybody know something about Mason that we would definitely today... Despite how right on he was about most things, uh, and that we as uh, people in the PCA would agree with him on most things, can anyone think of something that we would definitely want to call heterodox? And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But something that's not so far as we'd say heresy, like he's, out, he's not a believer, but something that's like, whoa, that's really moving in a bad direction. Anyone know anything? What's that? No, no, no. He was, he was, a, he was a diehard Presbyterian reformed guy. So a good guess, but no. Okay, think, think early 20th century a little bit. I mean, he was, he, he probably didn't emphasize that as much as he should have, uh, but that's not, that's a good, that's a good guess, and, and I would even probably agree with that. That's not kind of what I'm thinking of. <clears throat> Machen, like most white, okay, theologian in his, his day, was an ardent supporter of segregation, okay? So again, you cannot go back to anybody. It doesn't matter. Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, who can think of something, who knows something about Luther that we're like, oh my gosh, it makes us cringe, yeah, yeah, if you read against the Jews, if you don't want to throw up by the end of that book, something's wrong with you, okay? Now, again, that, that it's, so this is important that we need to be looking at ourselves. Where are we overly products of our time and our culture, okay? Where are we reading into uh, the Bible a certain tradition or theology that's really not there, okay? So again, it's, it's a reminder to always come back to Scripture um, and to not be overly um, hampered down by tradition, okay? 
All right, so um, let me grab my marker real quick. <clears throat> so the first thing I want to look at is what is heterodoxy? So if you guys remember my sort of famous or maybe infamous by now, two circles, okay? This is the institutional church. This is professing, people who profess to be Christian, but we would look at it as out of bounds. Heterodoxy, if you look at this, is sort of like the core of biblical truth. Heterodoxy is any teaching that we would not call heresy, we would not say it's so out of bounds like the denial of the deity of Christ or anything like that, that we would say that person is not our brother in Christ. But it is a teaching that we would say is moving in that direction. Does that make sense to everybody? It's getting really, really dangerous. Okay. <clears throat> and throughout the history of the church, you had more and more of these doctrines developing. And they began to cause more and more problems until... You might want to write this down. By the time you get to the eve of the Reformation, biblical Christianity is diseased and is dying. I mean, it is really, really bad. Okay, And if you're just like, well, it's all just about theology. No, I'm going to show you guys. I'm going to go over this week and part of next week some of the practical consequences of some of these uh, um, heterodoxies that led to um, a lot of corruption and immorality and stuff like that within the church. So it's not just about heady theology. This very much affected people uh, and their daily lives, okay? <clears throat> all right, so again, not something that we would call heresy, all right, but it's something that we feel very confident is unbiblical, and when you start piling up heterodoxies, eventually you're going to cross that line, okay? And uh, most Reformed Christians throughout history, okay, believe that the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church crossed that line at the time of the Reformation, okay? And that's why God rose up something very new and fresh, and it was a back-to-the-Bible type of movement, okay? Um, I can't go over every single example of this, but I want to go over some of the major uh, ones that really caused a lot of problems, okay? The first would be church government. <clears throat> now, biblically speaking, okay, most Protestants have agreed that there are two basic offices Okay, in the church. What are those? Elders and deacons. Thank you. Okay. What are some of the other names that, that are given to elders in Scripture? Yeah, presbyters. Okay. Okay, pastors. Okay, shepherds. You know, bishops sometimes is the way the word is translated. Those types of things. Okay. So these are the primary sort of teachers and preachers within the church, okay? And the deacons, okay, their job is primarily, okay, to serve the church through practical means, okay? Now, there are differences within Protestantism as to exactly how to apply these offices. Some take a more congregational form of church government. Obviously, some take a Presbyterian. Some take a more Episcopal, okay? And those are important differences, okay? But they're not nearly uh, on the level of some of the stuff that developed uh, during the Middle Ages and to some extent in the early uh, church, okay? Right off the bat, you have this in the early church. One of the first sort of kind of veering in a heterodox, heterodox direction um, was that the church started to call elders or pastors what? Okay, that comes later. It's a good guess, and that does come later. Okay, priests. Okay, very good. Priests. Might not sound like a huge deal. I mean, I think you can even make a theological case that pastors have a 
priestly-esque office, okay? I mean, they are sort of the leaders of the church. Uh, they are the ones that are primarily supposed to be praying for the people. They administer the sacraments, so on and so forth. But again, in the New Testament, that word is never used, okay? And the primary reason is, what was one of the primary duties of the priests in the Old Testament? Offer animal sacrifices. And those have been abolished, okay? At first, in the early church, this wasn't a giant deal. It was mostly just sort of a different name for pastors, and it was really emphasizing their sort of, uh, you know, that they, like I said, they administered the sacraments. They were the preachers. They were the teachers, so on and so forth. They saw it as sort of they were kind of carrying on uh, the, the, the priestly duties of the Old Testament priests minus the animal sacrifices, okay? Later on that we'll see, though, it became sort of seen in the church that they sort of, if Old Testament priests, their primary thing was to offer sacrifices to God, people started to ask the question, well, then what do New Testament priests offer? And eventually that led to the development of the Mass, okay, which is the doctrine that you're literally re-sacrificing Christ unto God, which is a big-time uh, error, okay, which is something I would call extreme heterodoxy, okay? But again, that, that sort of, none of this happened overnight. It all sort of developed kind of over time, all right? Now, as Gnosticism, you guys all remember Gnosticism? Okay, as Gnosticism developed, there became this push in the church to centralize the church more. They said, we got to distinguish Orthodox Bible-believing churches from these Gnostic churches. We got to make it clear to the pagan world what is the true church and what is the, not the true church. Okay, so they began to kind of split the church up into regions, and they said that it would be, it's, it's going to be helpful if each one of those regions is ruled over by one of these uh, presbyters or elders, okay? And eventually, over time, that developed into the doctrine of what was said earlier. You remember? Bishops, Bishops okay, very good. Okay, so if you think of the institutional church like this, and obviously it was a lot more regions, okay, than this, all right? But basically, if the church is broken up into all these different regions, each region had a bishop, okay, ruling over it. And underneath the bishop, okay, we're all of the priests. I'm just going to put P. All of the priests, okay, presided over a single church. They were the pastor, all right? Um, they would have deacons and other types of things that helped them out, but they were the pastor of that church, and they were the, under the authority of that bishop. Now, at this time, there was no universal bishop. And I know Roman Catholics will tell you up and down that that's not true, but that's simply historical revisionism. Even good Catholic historians will admit there really wasn't anything along the lines of a pope in the early church. They'll say, theologically, there should have been. That's what the Bible and quote-unquote tradition teaches. But the church was still in its infancy and was kind of working this out. But you do have a lot of Roman Catholic apologists who will actually try to prove that there was a pope from the beginning. And it's just, it's just historical nonsense. Okay? There was nothing along the lines of a bishop in Rome who had recognized jurisdiction over the entire church. Does that make sense? Okay, It's just historical revisionism. But... What you did have, okay, is this also this doctrine that developed known as the patriarchs, okay? <clears throat> These were bishops, okay, who were seen as giving what was called a primacy of honor. You, they didn't have authority over your jurisdiction, but it was seen as they were sort of like later like Athanasius. They were given a high amount of clout, okay, when they wrote theology because it was seen as they were bishop of an area that had always been so prominent in the church that they were given what was called a primacy of honor. Does anyone know some of the cities, okay, where the bishop of that um, location was given what was called a primacy of honor? Rome. Okay, Rome. Very good. 
Rome, Jerusalem, okay, Alexandria. Okay, hold on, you guys are going so fast. <laughs> and the handwriting's getting worse as it goes. Okay, Antioch, okay, what was the other one? Uh, no, actually, no, Constantinople. Very good, excellent, okay. Everyone remember what I said about, if you guys read my handout on the Middle Ages, the church started to split between two overarching big regions. What were those? Do you guys remember from the handout? East and West. Very good. Okay. You'll notice something about these patriarchs. Four of them are where? In the East. Okay. How many? Oh, you guys are fine. How many are in the West? Only one. Okay. And you guys should see from that. Because there was only one patriarch in the West, what do you think started to happen with that patriarch? He's given more and more and more and more and more honor. And when the church, as you guys remember from my handout, when the church formally split in 1054 with the East-West schism, and the East said, you guys over there are heretics, and the West said, you guys over there are heretics, guess what? There's only one uh, patriarch, okay, in the West, and that is the Bishop of Rome. And from that point on, okay, that's when you really have, okay, the Pope in the sort of more modern Catholic sense. He is sort of recognized as the official, absolute head of the church that everyone should recognize as sort of the universal bishop. Does that make sense? Okay, but it didn't happen overnight. And Catholics can say otherwise all they want, but it's really historical revisionism. Not until about the East-West Schism do you really have the Pope in this modern sense, okay? But all of this is the background that led up to what we call the papacy today. Does that make sense, okay? Along the way, okay, I don't really understand why. I really don't, okay? Because most of these terms are nowhere found in Scripture. But you had, the, the, especially in the Catholic West, they just started adding position after position after position after position. You had altar boys. You had readers. You had... I mean, just this, that, and the other, okay? Eventually, you have cardinals, okay? And they're like these really high-ranking bishops, okay? And they vote in uh, uh, the Pope. You just, all these positions to where, you know, by the time you get to the late kind of Middle Ages, you have just a plethora of different types of clergy, okay? I'm not going to go into every single type and what every single one did. Just remember, it's still, the main positions, okay, were priest, bishop. They eventually even came up with archbishop, okay? which is sort of like ruling over a really big region, okay, of the church. Um, and then you have uh, um, patriarchs, okay, and eventually the Bishop of Rome in, uh, with the East-West Schism becomes the universal head of the Western church, okay? All right? And this led to all kinds of problems, okay, because the church became way, way too political, all right? And eventually, okay, the Pope was seen as almost on a level of Scripture, okay? And then at the Reformation, the Catholic Church basically puts him on the level of Scripture, and then in the 1800s, it formally puts him on the level of Scripture. Does that make sense? So in the Roman Catholic Church today, if the Pope speaks what they call ex cathedra, which means in his official capacity as a bishop, okay, what he is saying is infallible truth. Now, they wouldn't say it's new revelation the way Scripture is. So again, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but it's still... It's still at the same level of authority as Scripture, okay? It's not revelatory like Scripture, but it's on the same level of authority as Scripture, okay? And just think about what an amazing thing that is, okay? I mean, you're, you're giving uh, this man, okay, the level of authority of, of an apostle, even though the uh, Scripture is very clear that the apostles have passed away, okay? All right, so um, that's kind of church government. The next one I want to go over is humanism, <clears throat> Thank you.
Okay, humanism really began to develop, okay, in the Renaissance era. Sort of the late Middle Ages. If you guys remember the handout from about 1300 to 1500 A.D. Now, from a practical standpoint, okay, like what I mean is like your day-to-day people's lives, all right, in a lot of ways the Renaissance was a good thing, okay? Uh, people started to have more, um, better living conditions, better jobs, they had more pay, people were more educated, there was a lot more art, okay, as opposed to going to kind of a ramshackle little tiny church in your village, people were going to these giant cathedrals, so on and so forth. And for, for a lot of people, it felt like Europe was sort of reaching its apex, its pinnacle, right? But behind that, okay, sort of behind that veneer was a tremendous amount of theological and moral corruption, okay? Now, in a lot of ways, the, the Renaissance was a good thing because Aquinas, if you guys remember I talked about last week, he really pushed that the church needed to be more, um, you know, emphasized education in all spheres, okay? The church in a lot of ways had become an embarrassment. We were so ridiculously behind Islam and Judaism and paganism in things like math, architecture, art, um, you know, uh, um, technology, all this medicine, all right? It was really an embarrassment, okay? And the Renaissance cured a lot of that. So I don't want you guys, sometimes uh, as Reformed people, we make it out like the, the Renaissance is all bad, just across the board. And that's not really totally true. And a lot of what Aquinas started, a lot of what he pushed into action, okay, really led to the Reformation, this push that scripture is to be applied to all areas of life. And as much as possible, obviously not everybody has the means or the the, the resources to be highly educated, but as much as possible, we are to educate ourselves. That doesn't mean everyone needs to go to college and get degrees and be scholars and all that type of stuff, okay? I'm not saying that, but as much as possible within your own sphere and your own vacation, we are to be as educated as possible, both as far as scripture and the application of scripture to all spheres of life, okay? And without Aquinas and the Renaissance, to some extent, there would be no Reformation, okay? Um, one of the big things of the Renaissance was this push to go back to the sources, go back to the church fathers, to go back to the ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek of scripture, and that was really some of the foundational elements of the Reformation, okay? But, having said all that, trying to be fair to the Renaissance, the one of the bad things was, okay, it was the beginning of humanism. Now, a lot of it was curbed, a lot of it was kept in check by the church, saying, you know, God's still in charge and all this stuff, but as opposed to the focus being on the glory of God, okay, as it always had been in the Middle Ages, even though they sort of corrupted that with all this Marian saints emphasis, okay? Um, they really were trying to emphasize the glory of God. Now, again, they sort of twisted that so that you neglected everything else, like math and science and all that stuff like I talked about, all right? But with the Renaissance, there started to be more and more of an emphasis on humans, human beings, okay, being the center and the focus. And they said, no, no, that all glorifies God. So they still tried to kind of sneak that in. But you have sort of this beginnings, stages, okay, which over time led eventually to the Enlightenment, and then that led to secular humanism, and then that led to liberal Protestantism, and we are still dealing with the effects of that in the church today, okay? So again, humanism was sort of started in the Renaissance, where more and more the emphasis was on the glory of man, rather than the glory of God, okay? <clears throat> Sort of an inadvertent result of this, I don't think this was the intention of the early humanists, but sort of an inadvertent result of this, okay, is that God was seen as very, very angry and distant, okay? He's out there, all right? 
they really began to emphasize the transcendence of God, all right? And that was sort of how they sort of justified this emphasis on humanity, all right? Is that God is so transcendent, he's so out there, okay? We need to focus more on humanity, and that will glorify God. But by the time you get to the Reformation, okay, God is just seen as this angry, vengeful God, and you got to go through the Pope, and you got to go through Mary, and the priests, and the Mass, and all this stuff before you actually can even dare to get close to God. Does that make sense, all right? So again... Humanism had sort of that effect. And it was all tied in with other elements that I'm going to talk about, the soteriology of the Middle Ages. So it wasn't, you know, just humanism that led to that problem, but humanism contributed to that problem, okay? All right, the next one, okay, would be idolatry. And this is a big one. This was a huge, huge problem that developed and was really just out of control. I'm talking on the level of Old Testament idolatry within the people of God at the time of the Reformation, okay? Remember, the hero of the Reformation, Martin Luther, okay, when he was uh, in that lightning storm, okay, who did he cry out to for help? Amen. Yeah, it wasn't Jesus, okay? It wasn't God, okay? It was the patron saint of minors, and why do you think he cried out to the patron saint of minors? His dad was a minor, exactly, okay? And that was the tradition, all right? You cried out to Mary first, or you cried out to the patron saint of your region or area or your family, all right, you don't go to Jesus first, okay? So even the hero of the Reformation, right? Again, he was definitely a product of that time and culture, and it took him a long ways to get away from that, all right? <clears throat> even like someone like Aquinas, who's pretty sound on this. If you've ever read the, um, uh, uh, his Summa Theologica, he certainly has Catholic doctrines in regard to Mary. He believed in praying to the saints. He believed in, in praying to Mary, and which is unfortunate, a lot of people don't realize even some of the early pre-reformers still believed in a lot of that stuff. Okay? People have this idea that Wycliffe and Huss rejected those doctrines. No, Wycliffe and Huss still believed in praying to the saints. That's how ingrained this was in the church. Okay? Even the reformers did not completely eradicate this up themselves from this. They said no more praying to Mary, no more praying to the saints. But still, the perpetual virginity of Mary was still a doctrine that was defended by the reformers, all right? They would not get rid of it. They said, that's crazy. That's going way too far. That's how ingrained some of this stuff was in the Middle Ages. And it was really the second generation of reformers who went back to Scripture and said, I don't think the Bible teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. She had kids, so, you know, um, I think she, you know, uh, had a normal marriage, okay, after um, she gave birth to Jesus, all right? <clears throat> now, like all heterodoxy, and again, a reminder to us, a reminder to us, it can start small. It can start with just a little error. Now, none of us are perfect, and I'm not saying we should be scared of being not the perfect theologians, but there is a sense in which we should be cautious when we are interpreting the Bible, when we are exegeting Scripture, because things can start out very, very small. Okay? Um, I was talking to Scott after one of my classes, and we were talking about a lot of this idolatry goes back to, if you guys remember, I told you I was going to put it on the back burner, we're going to come back to it. The early martyrs. You guys remember that in the, in the early church? Okay, They were the what in the early church? What did I call them? The heroes. And I mean, they were the rock stars in the early church. They made it. They didn't deny Christ. They weren't the laps. They made it all the way to the end. They were the heroes. All right? And also remember, all right, again, a reminder to us, we're all products of our time and our culture. Most people in the early church were Gentiles coming out of pagan Roman religion, all right? You prayed to the gods and you also prayed to who? Your personal what? Does anyone know Roman religion? Ancestors, okay? You prayed to your ancestors. So praying to people that were very meaningful to you 
didn't seem like that bizarre to people. That just seemed normal, all right? And a lot of people who didn't have access to as much scripture as they should have, we're talking about the infant church, okay? Praying to martyrs, all right, just seemed like a very normal thing. And again, it wasn't like the later Middle Ages, the idolatry we see with people going to statues and bringing them gifts and bowing down. It was simply, you would say, okay, to one of the uh, 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 martyrs in the early church, please pray for me. It wouldn't be much different if I went to Mark and I said, hey, I'm having a rough week. Could you pray for me, brother? All right. They literally just thought of it like that, that you had access to the spirit world because that was their culture. In Roman religion, the spirit world was everywhere. They didn't think of it as out there in heaven. All right. Your ancestors, the gods were all around you. Does that make sense? Okay. So praying to these heroes, what does the Bible say? The prayer of a righteous man is what? Powerful and effective. Yeah. Okay. So they thought, who's going to be more powerful and effective than these heroes of the faith. And it just almost didn't even occur to people not to pray, okay, uh, 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 to, to the martyrs, okay? <clears throat> Over time, though, okay, this gets worse, and this gets worse, and this gets worse, especially towards the end of the 300s. You guys remember I talked about the Arian controversies going on, all right? Um, and uh, Constantine has, has uh, given uh, Christianity this highly exalted status, and by the time you get to the end of the 300s, an emperor by the name of Theodosius has made Christianity the official religion of the empire. So now at this point, okay, church and state are as wed as they can be, all right? And pagans have to convert or they got to be banished. Now, was the empire able to implement that across the board? No, not really, okay? Uh, it, it did its best, but not really, all right? Um, a lot of these pagans were not that thrilled about being forced to be Christian. So what do you think the church did to try to accommodate them and make them feel more comfortable in the church? What's that? Yes. Syncretism. Big time. All right. Many churches, many, excuse me, many pagan temples were burned down. They were destroyed. Idols were knocked down, but not all of them. A lot of them were left up and they were simply converted into Christian churches. Okay. And those statues of those Roman gods, they became what? Statues of the saints, okay? All right? And the church tried to justify this and say, hey, you know, if I need to write a letter to Mark, okay, obviously today I'd just, you know, call or text or whatever, okay? But uh, back in the day, couldn't do that. All right? If I wanted to need to write a letter to Mark and ask him for prayer, that was great and that was fine. But it was much more meaningful if I could go to him, okay? So they said, you know, it would be really helpful if we kind of have this vis visual representation of the saints. Does that make sense to everybody? All right. And so they said, you know, this is a visual representation of Peter. All right. For example, it's not Peter himself, but it will help you think of Peter, remind you of Peter. All right. And then you can go to that and you can feel closer to Peter as you ask him for prayer. All right. Now, over time, there was a sense where they said, hey, when you go before a king or an emperor, what do you do? What do you do out of respect? You bow down. They said, well, you know, Peter's way better and way more superior than an emperor. How dare us not go and bow down in respect, okay? So they would go, all right, and they would uh, start to uh, bow down. They would bring gifts, okay, all these different types of things, all right? And by the time you get into the Middle Ages, people are decorating statues of saints, okay? They're putting flowers all over them. I mean, they are prostrating themselves. And this sort of asking for prayer thing the sort of middle ground words sort of start to get lost. As opposed to saying, you know, uh, um, 
Paul, St. Paul, pray for me, okay, you just sort of started to go, you know, Paul, grant me this, do this, that, and the other. Does that make sense, okay? All right, and before you know it, okay, you're having very serious idolatry creep into the church, okay? And it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until you get to the time of the Reformation, all right, when it is very, very much out of control, okay? Now, there was this question, okay, in the church as to, who is the greatest saint of all time? There was sort of this debate, all right? Who's the greatest of all the saints, all right? We want to sort of kind of know who are the top dogs. Who are the ones that we want to pray to the most, all right? And how did the church start to answer that? Okay, who, who, who do you think, okay, if, if, if you just had to guess, even as a Protestant, I mean, even as a Protestant, okay, who is probably the most godly person in Scripture, okay, apart from Jesus, okay? Uh, Peter, yeah, that's not the direction they went. I mean, that's a good guess. Don't get me wrong. Okay, what? Okay, no. Mary. Did you say Mary? Yeah, Mary. Yeah, okay. Why? Why would you say Mary? She is the mother of Jesus. And remember the Council of Chalcedon they talked about in my Trinity class? They said there is a sense in which, and most Protestants would actually agree with this, there's a sense in which we can say Mary is the mother of of God. Not that she gave birth to God in his divinity or she created God or anything like that, but the person in the womb of the Virgin Mary was fully God and fully human. All right. So they said, who, who else could be, okay, more godly uh, than Mary? And I'll be honest with you, even from a Protestant, if I were had, if I were forced at gunpoint to rank the greatest saints, even though scripture doesn't say this, I might put Mary at the top. Okay. I would never justify all this other stuff. But there was this sense in which, okay, she's sort of seen as the top saint. You go to her the most. And as all this idolatry gets worse and worse and worse, the emphasis on Mary gets worse and worse and worse. All right? Until just before the Reformation. All right? Really, the focus is much more on Mary herself. And we have seen that after the Reformation continue and really even get worse. Okay? Towards in the Roman Catholic Church today. Does anyone know some of the doctrines, okay, that are taught in the Catholic Church in regard to Mary? Yeah, that's one of the worst, absolutely. It came late, okay? She literally is co-redeemer in some sense of the word with Jesus Christ, okay? That's a really blasphemous title, all right? Okay, she's the queen of heaven, absolutely. She rules over heaven. And there is a sense, some Catholics will even say, God and Jesus won't make a decision without actually going through Mary. And therefore they say, in that sense of the word, She's omnipotent. I've, I've actually read Catholic theologians say that. They don't mean omnipotent like exactly like God. They'll qualify it and all this stuff. But they'll say there's a sense, a qualified sense in which she's omnipotent and God won't do anything unless he goes through Mary. Okay. So again, if it ever seems like I'm being too hard on Rome, I'm telling you it's because most evangelicals and most Protestants don't really understand Catholic theology. All right. It's gotten really, really bad. Okay. They say that she's sinless. Who does that sound like? Okay, Jesus. Now, they'll qualify that and say she still needed a savior and she's sin sinless from the time of her conception and all that stuff. But still, at the end of the day, she was sinless. All right. She was assumed into heaven. What does that sound like? Okay. The ascension. Exactly. Okay. She rules in heaven, as was pointed out earlier. Okay. They'll also call her mediatrix, meaning that God will only give us his sal salvific graces going through Mary herself. Okay. All right. Again, if, if, if that isn't idolatry, I really don't know what is. I mean, we can, we can qualify things and we can spin things all we want. If that's not idolatry, I've lost any conception of what idolatry is. Okay? All right. Very good. Um, okay. Next one is soteriology. I probably won't get through this all today. Um, I'll get through this uh, hopefully next week, and then we can actually dive into Martin Luther came along and said, 
oh my gosh, this has gotten bad, okay? And he basically just punched a hole right through the wall and all this stuff, and it crumbled, okay? All right, um, but at least today I can get kind of started on this, all right? <clears throat> okay, for those of you guys who haven't seen this before, Forgive me. Okay, those of you guys who have, hopefully this will be uh, um, a little bit easier, all right? Um, I use what's called my famous, okay, salvation chart, all right? I'm not going to get quite as complicated as I did, okay, in the Romans uh, class, but I'm going to give some of the basics, okay? All right, so basically, okay, you have right here, we have Adam and Eve. And there is a sense in which we have us as well. All of us, okay, we're in Adam and Eve in some sense of the word according to Scripture. If we were in the garden, we would have done what, according to the Bible? Same exact thing, okay? So we are, we are guilty of the same sin, all right? And that is why we are born, okay, with a sinful nature. God is not doing anything unjust or mean or harsh, okay, in original sin, all right? The Bible says Adam and Eve sinned, and, there, and then there's a sense in which we all sinned. Romans uh, chapter 5 makes that very, very clear, okay? All right. <clears throat> Adam and Eve, okay, first had what was known as the covenant of works. Basically, if you obey the law of God, you do not sin, all right, you will be given eternal life. You will be allowed to take uh, from the tree of life forever and ever, all right? <clears throat> However, if we sinned, okay, our punishment, according to Scripture, is what? Okay, and before you guys yell out hell and all that, remember my salvation chart. It, it's really summed up in one word, according to Scripture. What? Death. death. Okay, very good. Death. Death in Scripture does not simply mean physical death. All right? It means three things. Does anyone remember from before? Okay. Okay, which is really what? Okay. No, not spiritual. That's a good answer. It's separation from God, which is hell or eternal death. Okay, so that would be the most important part. Okay, eternal. It is physical. Our physical bodies die. And it is spiritual, which does not mean that our souls die. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying that we inherit a sinful nature. In both body and soul, we are corrupt. Okay, we desire sin, okay, above God. All right? All right. How did we do in the covenant of works? Okay, not so hot, all right? Okay, we failed miserably, okay? All right, and we are given uh, the penalty, okay? God could have carried out his punishment. He could have carried out his penalty, and he would not have been doing anything wrong or unjust or unfair, okay? Sending people to hell for all eternity is the biblical doctrine. It's not an easy doctrine, but it is what the Bible teaches, okay? All right, but God chose, okay, to give um, a select few, his elect, okay, mercy, all right? And that comes through, okay, what is known as the covenant of grace. And that is fulfilled in our place by, okay, Christ. Very good. Jesus is always a good answer, whether in young Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, Jesus fulfills the covenant of uh, works. He, uh, the covenant of grace fulfills the covenant of works. This is very important. God and his justice does not get rid of the covenant of works. He doesn't say, that was a bad idea, I don't know what I was thinking. Okay, let's just kick that to the curb, let's start over, and let's just, you know, a do-over. God doesn't do do-overs, all right? God is just, okay, uh, and he will stick, okay, to his plan, all right? 
So the covenant of works is not going to go away. It needs to be fulfilled. And Christ came and fulfilled it in our place. All right. He fulfilled it negatively. Okay. In that he took our punishment. Okay. Uh, where did he take our punishment? In cross. Okay. Really, there is a sense in which his suffering throughout his life. Okay. Is punishment for our sins. But ultimately, uh, the pinnacle of that is the cross. Okay. Now, here's where a lot of evangelicals today get it wrong. And it does matter. It's not hair splitting theology. It does matter, okay? Is this half has to be fulfilled? Most evangelicals today will say Jesus took the punishment for our sin and then we're good. We go to heaven, right? But that's not the biblical doctrine, okay? The law must be fulfilled. God does not just get rid of the law and say the law is no big deal. You know, I give it, but you know, whatever, okay? No, the law must be fulfilled. So Jesus positively, all right, fulfilled the law in our place, okay? So Jesus earns eternal life, okay? And when we have faith in Christ, we are united to him and what's his becomes ours and God imputes his righteousness to us, which means his righteousness of fulfilling the law in our place and our sins are imputed to him, which means credited, okay? Put to his account, his righteousness is put to our account, all right? Now, where does all this connect to the Middle Ages? All right, let's go there, all right? Because the early church got things basically pretty close to correct, all right? But just you'll see just these small errors all right, grew and grew and grew and got worse and worse and worse, all right, until you get to the full medieval sacramental system. But the early church had a faint grasp of all this stuff, all right? Most of the church, they didn't use all these terms, okay? But they understood there was Adam and Eve, everyone tracking, that we were in Adam and Eve, all right? The early church believed in uh, the doctrine of original sin. It was articulated differently by different people. Some people didn't think it came on until you were like four or five. Most people believed sometime in the womb. But everyone had some doctrine of original sin, some people believed it was much worse than others. Augustine, okay, is sort of a precursor of reformers, had a very strong doctrine of original sin. Others had a weaker. But everyone had this sense in which we are connected to Adam and Eve. There's a sense in which their sin is our sin, all right? So the church was pretty good on that front. And the church understood, okay, unlike most evangelicals today, that we needed to fulfill, okay, the law in order to get eternal life. There was a sense in which we needed positive righteousness, all right, before God can let us into heaven. Heaven must be, and this was a big word in the Middle Ages, merited, all right? And a lot of Protestants say, we don't merit eternal life, and that's true, but we don't want to be completely against the word merit because who did merit eternal life? Christ, okay? And so the early church had that right. There was a sense in which merit is important. And they understood, okay, that the cross took our punishment. Now, they weren't totally good on the atonement. I don't want to take a ton of time on this. Most held to, okay, the ransom uh, uh, theory. Have you guys heard of that? Okay. Um, a lot of people have twisted that theory to be like, it doesn't have anything to do with God's wrath. Satan sort of tricked God. And that's not really what the church fathers were articulating. They were simply saying this, okay? There was a sense in which God was saying that if Adam and Eve failed as their punishment, as, one, as the main their punishment, they would be subject, okay, to the authority and dominion of Satan. And there's some truth to that. There's actually some, you know, uh, there's a sense in which that is correct, okay? But they sort of overemphasized that. And they said the way that God had to sort of uh, uh, redeem us is he had to find a way, okay, to get Satan, all right, to sort of give up his dominion, all right? And that's sort of what the cross was about. He sort of kind of duped Satan. Not in this, like, deceptive way, God can't be deceptive, but it's sort of like, okay, uh, like in war where you might, like, trick your enemy, all right? Uh, kind of like that. God was being uh, uh, strategic, all right? So the emphasis was on our deliverance from Satan, not so much 
uh, directly on our, our freedom from our punishment. Although punishment was connected because the early church fathers said we were under the dominion of Satan because of our punishment. Does that make sense? Okay, but later with Anselm, do you guys remember from my handout, the first great scholastic, he corrected a lot of this stuff and really more emphasized that Christ took our punishment more directly. Anselm wasn't perfect on the atonement, all right? Now, here's where the church got really, really fuzzy, okay? They said the cross took care of our punishment, all right? It wiped it out. Satan no longer has dominion. We're now free. But they also understood this, and this is where they were correct on the one hand, but they got things really wrong and it got things muddled. They said, that only brings us here. And the early church was right on that. Unlike evangelicals who think once the cross, that brings you here, the early church said, no, 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 that only brings you here. So then the question was, what? How do I get to here? All right. And that's what they said. Okay. On some level, they said, you get there by your own merit, by your own works. Now, you might say, whoa, 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 Dan, that doesn't sound like heterodoxy. That sounds like just full-blown heresy. Okay, well, let me, let me back up, okay, before we get too feisty, all right? <clears throat> Most of the early church, okay, and this is really the doctrine of Aquinas. If you read the, the um, Summa Theologica, he's off, he's wrong, don't get me in my opinion, uh, but he's a lot closer to the truth than a lot of both Protestants and Catholics want to give him credit, all right? Is they basically said, look, as long as you place, place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to him. You love Jesus. You are relying on him. Okay. He will make sure he will carry you home. Okay. He will make sure that you do the works you need to do to get to here. Does that make sense? And they said, it's only through your faith in Christ that God gets rid of your spiritual death. So now you're spiritually alive. And they said, that's a free gift of grace. Okay. So they were, again, they were trying to emphasize faith. They were trying to emphasize grace. And they said at every step of the way along here, the emphasis should be on faith. Does that make sense? Trusting in Christ, and he will make sure you do the good works, okay, in order, all right, to get to here, all right? Now, is that straight up good biblical doctrine? No, all right? But again, I don't think we should go so far as to call it heresy, A, okay, um, just because, again, this was the early church. They were trying to figure this out, all right? And B, you know, it does create problems for us as Protestants because then you have to say, well, if that wasn't the church before the Reformation, where was the church? Does that make sense? All right, and you, you got a real issue there. All right, not even Wycliffe and, and Huss completely eradicated themselves of this type of thinking. They mostly were trying to go, they you know, were trying to attack indulgences, the overemphasis on sacraments and the saints and stuff like that. But even Wycliffe and Huss, who we consider heroes of the faith, really basically believed in a doctrine pretty similar to this. Okay, so again, if we want to go back and condemn pretty much everybody before the Reformation, you can do that. But I do think it creates a lot of theological problems. And again, I come back to the fact that the emphasis, until we get to sort of the late Middle Ages, okay, the emphasis, okay, was on faith. That as long as you had faith in Christ, he's going to make sure you get to, to heaven, all right? And, and another big difference is, and this might sound, well, that sounds very contradictory. Well, again, theologians aren't perfect. They do contradict themselves sometimes, all right? Augustine and Aquinas and many other theologians actually use the language of faith alone. And you might be like, wait a second, how can they use the language of faith alone all right, when they believed in this? Okay. And because they basically said, look, when you first come to Christ, okay, it's not faith and good works. God doesn't say, all right, have faith and then go do a bunch of good works and then he'll put you on the path. He said, no. They said, if you have faith and faith alone, you are saved in this sense, all right? God has redeemed you from spiritual life, and as long as you keep your faith, as long as it's sort of kind of in a semi-Arminian type of approach, but as long as you have that faith, God will make sure you have eternal life. And they said, in that sense, 
In that sense, you are saved by faith alone. All right. So again, I don't think we can go so far as to call that heresy. Is it messy? Is it ugly? Is it not correct? Did it cause problems? Yes, absolutely. But I think we would want to be careful. All right. Going back to my two circles. Okay, I'm going to draw two smaller circles here. But I think it's it's right here, right from the get go. The church was was toting the line. All right. But again, I don't think it crossed it until you come to the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent didn't just teach this doctrine. As bad as this is and messed up as this is, they said any form of faith alone is not just incorrect, it's what? Anathema. Anathema. And in my opinion, that's not putting your toes up to the line. In my opinion, you don't have to agree with me, that's crossing the line. That's basically, I don't know how to reconcile that with Galatians. All right, does that make sense? This, I think you're, you're making a mess of things, but you're still at least on the right track, okay? And certainly they emphasize good works, just like as good Protestants, okay, we would emphasize good works, all right? But um, uh, the emphasis was on faith. Yes? Absolutely. And, that, and, and as Protestants, we would certainly say works flow from faith, but they don't contribute to our justification, all right? And there was a sense in which there was a sense in which the church said your final justification before God, there is a sense in which it is your works contribute to that. Now, we would say that they would say, excuse me, that it was only because you had faith and you were trusting in Christ at every point. All right. But, um, you know, that, that was sort of their doctrine. OK, we would say works lead from faith or flow from faith, but they never contribute to your justification because our good works are always what, according to Scripture? imperfect yeah okay they're always tainted by sin they cannot come before the judgment seat of god and real quick i know i gotta go all right um but this was one of the biggest things that led to so much angst in the middle ages all right is those okay who were not as sound as aquinas and augustine all right those who really took this seriously all right like luther they said all right if my good works save me on some level even if they're done through christ and christ helping have faith all right those works must meet the standards of God's law. And I look at my good works and it's like, dude, they don't meet the standard of God's law. So I'm in big trouble. And this caused a lot of people to have a lot of angst, okay? And especially Luther. And that's why the Reformation, okay, cleaned up a lot of this, all right? Okay, I'm gonna, there's a lot more I can go over on the soteriology stuff and I'll do that. Uh, uh, Chuck, real quick. Okay, all right. Thank you guys very much, all right?